Welcome to On the Other Side, where we talk crypto, culture, and society, and explore what the world might look like on the other side of Web3 adoption. Before we hop into the show, a quick thank you to the sponsors that make this episode possible. On this show, we talk all about the human side of Web3 and the philosophy around Web3, but when you're ready to get your hands dirty, Rabbit Hole is the place to go. Rabbit Hole curates all of the wildness of Web3 into one simple place where users can go to be directed towards positive sum protocols and build their skill set as they do it. You can check it out at rabbithole.gg. Thank you, Rabbit Hole, for sponsoring On the Other Side. All right, let's hop into the show. I am here with one of my favorite people in the space, John Hillis. John, thank you so much for coming on the show. Chase, that's too kind. I feel the same way about you. I can't wait to dive in to some of the things that you've written about and have been thinking about. Um, You wrote this phenomenal piece called Rousseau's Breadcrumbs and the Blockchain Leviathan, and I'm obsessed with this. And I was rereading it and prep for this podcast, and I was just like, holy shit, I love this piece. And I love the way that you approach these types of marriages between like philosophical and practical applications of political theory and philosophy and all this stuff. Um, But before we dive into all of those things, maybe you can give a little bit of background on you, how you fell down the crypto rabbit hole. And I've been doing this thing where everyone asks how you fell down the crypto rabbit hole. So um, give us something a little spicy, something you don't usually talk about in your crypto journey as well, if you can think of something. Ooh, yeah. Okay. So my my path down the crypto rabbit hole, um, you know, is one that is I, I think decently common among people, at least that were were getting into it in that era. Which is that in college, my college roommate showed me Silk Road, um, and that was kind of my first introduction to Bitcoin and and to the ideas around it. And you know, around that same time, actually, there were a couple factors that that were overlapping in college that that kind of led me to to my current path one one was certainly that another one was that i was a political science and environmental studies major and and the things that i got most interested in were um collective action problems and and particularly strategies for small groups to coordinate to overcome collective action problems and um, there wasn't a lot of interest in that in in the field at the time uh, outside of some niche circles and we'll talk a little bit more about that in the context of today's conversation I'm sure but um, you know it was essentially research on DAOs though though of course we weren't calling them that at the time and then I was also just living in this amazing dense residential community at a small liberal arts school. And so all three of those things really have impacted my um, career after college. That roommate and I started a, um, was essentially like a early token gated community. You know, there weren't really like proper on-chain tokens you could use at the time. Um, But uh, we had this little, you know, thing hacked on top of Stripe to to basically try to have like a, a gated community for, you know, online conversation, which absolutely nobody was interested in 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 2014 um (laughs) shut that down and decided to go work for you know real startups and yeah so i spent six years at instacart was a a director of product there and then um after the pandemic hit followed my therovian dream to go build a cabin in the woods and bring internet people together at it um started writing some science fiction about network cities inviting online creators out to the cabin um, and then sitting around you know a, a campfire one night in 
uh, early 2021, a group of us decided to start a DAO that would host a creator residency program and, and help seed our network city. And since then, we've we've grown, you know, cabin into this thriving online and IRL community that's building a network of remote co-living neighborhoods to form the backbone of an emerging network city. I love that. And I love the cabin vibe more broadly. I have said many times, I think cabin is the most wholesome project in the space while also being incredibly well thought out and intellectually really, really interesting. And the way that you think about a lot of this, I think is fascinating. I guess I want to dive into your piece on Rousseau's breadcrumbs and the blockchain Leviathan. But before we even do that, would you say that 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 iconic moment at the campfire when you decided to start Cabin, do you think you formed a social contract then? Mm, interesting question. Yeah. Um, yeah, certainly in some ways we we formed one, you know, th- that night with the group of us around the campfire. And then um, over the following week, we, you know, formed one with the 101 people on the internet who contributed to the original crowdfund that created the residency program and kicked off the the DAO. Yeah, I love the idea also of forming a social contract online, which I think we'll get into. Um, I guess very like broad strokes overview. I did not realize that you studied political science, which makes so much sense in the context of this piece and how you think about things more broadly. Maybe we can start off with just like an overview of social contract theory and maybe a couple of the key players in that realm for people who aren't familiar. Yeah, sure. So I. You know, I've been spending a lot of time trying to trace back the origins of our kind of modern uh, post-Enlightenment political system and and just try to understand how we ended up here, because it seems like we're stuck in a rut. And I I think, you know, most people would probably agree, at least in the United States um, and and, maybe even around the world, that our, our current political system, which is sort of becoming increasingly polarized and in, entrenched around these left and right uh, dichotomy, you know, that, that that is just not working great for a lot of people right now. Um, and it seems to be getting worse instead of better. And so I was trying to understand the roots of how that happened <laughs> and, um, you know, where there might be a way out. So a, a kind of fun fact with the idea of left and right, that comes from the French Revolution. So in 1789, when they started trying to form a, a post-monarchy government in, in France, the nobles sat on the right side of parliament, the common delegates sat on the left side. Um, and that came to define or, or at least be a representation for the political spectrum that we still use today. And if you try to understand like who who are the core political philosophers or thinkers behind the left and the right in the sort of traditional Western post-Enlightenment telling of this, on the right, you have Hobbes and on the left, you have Rousseau. And so I, I wanted to go back and kind of like read those um, original works and and reread them. Luckily, I am a huge nerd and and kept all my books from college. Um, so I, I have a, a decent little library uh, to go poke around in. And so I started reading these guys and, and trying to understand like where those emerge from. I won't get too far into like political philosophy 101, but you know, I think the TLDR is basically that 
Hobbes wrote about this need for centralized sovereign leadership and basically was was espousing the dominant view of of the kind of monarchy at the time, which was the political system in which basically you had kings who wielded governance and, and power and were a sovereign body, you know, made up of the people. If you actually look at the cover of the Leviathan, uh, it's a it's a picture that Hobbes helped design that is literally like a, a giant king, um, you know, made out of people. And in contrast, Rousseau tried to define this social contract that became the sort of like basis for the left. Um, and, you know, I, I, I was expecting to like find a lot of interesting insights in Rousseau's writing. I ended up being pretty disappointed by it because it just felt like it was rearranging Hobbes's ideas a little bit. And it, it made me realize that a lot of the thinking at that time was very based in the historical precedent of monarchy. And so this sort of like, you know, the, the Rousseau definition of the left, which, um, you know, is built around this idea of equality and of, of social contracts between people is certainly a big improvement over monarchy, but it, uh, it doesn't really like provide very good answers for what those systems should look like or how they should work. Yeah, I found it really fascinating that you weren't able to find sort of the answer that you were seeking or the the interesting points that you thought you might. And it felt like in, in the piece, you kind of point to this idea that he was very much getting somewhere in his approach, but almost lacking like the, I don't know if it's the technologies, but um, the means of making these things real. Yep. Do you think that's fair? Like, do you think he was just hundreds of years before his time or or at least before the technology came that we were actually able to start experimenting with systems that were very aligned with his philosophical approach? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I, I think it was a combination of technology and mindset. Um, and I think those two things, maybe we even underappreciate in, in history how much those two things are like deeply tied to each other. Like what, what I ultimately came to for, for like the reason for why Rousseau fell short um, by kind of modern standards is that, you know, he was operating under the assumption that you kind of had to figure out a solution for governance that could be applied to these things that were formerly kingdoms and as a result had very large populations. Right? They weren't sort of like starting from scratch trying to define political systems. They were starting from the perspective of like, hey, this king thing isn't working great anymore. Like we need something to replace it. And, um, you know, even in the United States where, where um, you know, kind of the best example of, of um, the post-enlightenment democracy republic emerged, um, even there it was like, two and a half million former subjects of kings spread across a, a quarter million, you know, square miles of land. And on top of that, to your point about technology, extremely limited transportation and communication technologies. Like, you know, there's the famous picture of the, um, the Declaration of Independence with all the signers. They were all, actually never all in the room at the same time. It was too hard to get people together. And so these people were trying to coordinate to create these new political systems but they had to design them for huge groups of people, um, and they had to design them using very primitive communication and coordination technologies. 
Yeah. And and I think what this kind of brings my brain to is this question of you talk a lot in the piece about experimenting and learning from particularly like non-Western organization systems and really starting to play around with with different mechanisms for governing and organizing that maybe don't either inherit some of the like kingdom-esque structures that you're talking about or that are just not getting a lot of, um, you know, time and attention in the way that we think about governing today. And so it's worth experimenting with those. Um, And so that kind of makes me wonder, like, we often talk about learning from history and, and all of that. But I do think that when we think about learning from history and what we can glean from the past and all of that, we do often sort of come to the conclusion that something either doesn't work or won't work because of these underlying assumptions that you're talking about that are actually like just not really fair assumptions. I don't know if that's making sense, but basically how much can we actually learn from history when there are so many confounding factors that we actually don't necessarily have to deal with now? And how we navigate that feels like a a challenge more broadly for building these new types of systems. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, yeah, that's a great jumping off point. I think that, I mean, I think there's an incredible amount to learn from from history. And I'll sort of take the other side of that one. So, you know, I think there's a real tendency in Dow world to say like, oh, you know, our technologies are so different. Like we're doing something so new. There's like, we need to invent new things, not learn from the past. Um, and and there is some truth to that for sure. And we, we can talk more about what some of those particularly like experimental opportunities look like. But I I personally still find history to be an incredibly deep teacher uh, about, you know, social systems, because the reality is like humans have been humans for a long time. And we've been doing humaning, which is basically just like, you know, social contracts in various forms. for the whole time we've been humans. And so um, like to think that there aren't really strong lessons to learn from that, it it feels to me like an over-reliance on the newness of the technology when most of the problem is still just like human coordination problems. Um, Mm. And I also think that, you know, we really underestimate how smart people used to be. Like there's this weird thing where, you know, we tend to like kind of assume a very flat, version of the past and of people in the past and we we kind of treat them like you know to use a, a video game term like non-player characters like <laughs> um and they're actually they're all super deep rich interesting um people and perspectives so like a good example of this rousseau i actually think rousseau knew what a better answer here looked like and this is what the breadcrumbs analogy points to is that there are some points, some really tantalizing moments in the social contract and and in some of his other core writings where it's evident that he knew exactly what a better answer looked like. He just also knew that within the context of the society he was living in, it wasn't feasible. So for instance, you know, there's this amazing part in his discourse on the origin of inequality um, where he's got this like cheeky subterfuge where he like is repeatedly praising, you know, the most honorable, magnificent and sovereign lords, almost like to the point where it becomes a bit of a shtick. 
And then after he goes through this like repeated praising of them, he uses the rest of the, the dedication section to basically flip it on its head and describe his ideal society, which is essentially just one that doesn't have any sovereign lords. And so what that you know looks like in his mind is essentially a small cooperative democratic city state. Um, you know, uh, he describes this free city um, situated between nations with with no interest in attacking each other, um, a, a republic that doesn't tempt the ambitions of its neighbors. And he also talks about in in the social contract how he believes that there's this way to combine the external power of great people with the ease and administration and good order of a small state. Which is like, oh wow, cool! That that sounds amazing. Turns out he doesn't get to that part, and he sort mm. of acknowledges that while he wanted to talk more about confederations and and some of these more decentralized structures, he ended up abandoning that work, and and it sounds like maybe even destroying it. And so it's hard to know like what happened there, right? Did he write something that pissed off the kind of power structures of the time, and he couldn't publish it? Did he not, you know, end up actually writing it because he he like couldn't quite wrap his mind around that? Either way, though, like the understanding of his mindset in the context of the time he was in is still a super useful, you know, historical precedent to understand and think about. Mm. I definitely want to get into those those breadcrumbs and dive more into what you propose around the blockchain Leviathan. But I think even before we do that, this brings up something in my mind, which is basically this dynamic that you're pointing to around creating new ideas and how either the creation of those ideas or the publishing of those ideas engage with the systems that are currently in place. Mm. And so it kind of makes me think in the context of what we're doing today, how much of our approach and our thinking is heavily either shaped by or even limited by the platforms that we currently use and and sort of live within. Yeah. Yeah, that's a that's a fantastic point. I think you that, that's maybe one of the best reasons to read history is just to understand how sort of like blinded by current thinking people used to be and as a result like acknowledging how blinded by current thinking and structures we must also be now. Um, one of the best like, uh, you know, resources I, I, I've seen recently for understanding this, particularly in the context of political, social governance structures, is David Graeber and David Wenrose, The Dawn of Everything, which actually starts out, uh, you know, I, I picked it up after um, I, I had read some of the Rousseau pieces I, I was just talking about. And he, he makes, they, the two of them make a similar kind of argument at the beginning of Dawn of Everything. But then what they really do is they just unpack this incredibly long, dense, interesting history of basically the non-Western version of this story. Because it, it hmm. turns out like all of the stuff that we just talked about is just like extremely trapped in the blinders of Western political philosophy. And even the entire sort of like core idea of the way that nations and states and cities emerged that, you know, uh, us in sort of like modern Western world tend to think about um, this idea of, um, you know, the transition to agriculture and um, the way that that created power structures and, 
you know, the way that 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 created private property rights and the way that that created, you know, aspects of our modern political system. All of that stuff is just like a very narrow view. <laughs> um, and the book, The Dawn of Everything, does a really great job of just documenting the incredible range across pre-Westernized um, uh, Americas, as well as, you know, other cases throughout um, history, um, a lot of great examples from the early um, river-based civilizations in in the um, kind of river valleys of Mesopotamia that all point to just this incredible range of different approaches to human structures and social structures and political structures that do not fit our kind of like very constrained binary. Mm. I know this is like a very big question, but it's where my brain goes. So maybe maybe you have an answer for it. Maybe you don't. When I think about how to catch that kind of thing where, um, you know, you're using a certain mental model that's borrowed from a very limited structure, often my mind goes to, okay, like what are the characteristics? What are, what are the telling moments of being like, mm, I'm thinking in a very limited scope? Are there any specific things that come to mind for you after thinking about all of this, reading the dawn of everything, um, that are hints that are like, oh, okay, maybe I'm thinking in a very limited sort of Western influence scope and I need to, I need to be pushing myself outside of that. Hmm. Yeah. Um, it's the problem with that is that it's just so hard to know <laughs> when your thinking right. is, is sort of trapped in this way because you it's like an it's an unknown unknown like you you can't see outside of the box and so it's hard to know what's outside of the box um i think it really sometimes just requires somebody you know kind of shining a light on on a new area um or i i have found that reading original texts from eras like going back and and you know reading um rousseau or hobbes or or right now i'm reading um Tocqueville's Democracy in America, which gives a, a really good sense of like the period, you know, kind of just after this as American institutions and associations are starting to form. Um, <clears throat> I think that just putting yourself into the shoes of some of those original writings can really help jog your own understanding of like how trapped in the times people are in general and, and can maybe help shed a light on, you know, some, some of um, how, how we're trapped as well. Mm. Really interesting. And I guess it, just to highlight this, you mentioned it earlier, like I think something that is very promising about reading original works as well is this idea, and you call it out in the article too, of seeing these thinkers as like intellectual peers, which I think is really, really interesting. And, and this goes back to your NPC comment as well um, around saying, okay, like what can I glean from them as if I was reading this is so dumb, but their book as a tweet on Twitter, like engaging it intellectually in that way, I think is something that we often don't do. So I like that push. Yeah, it's so easy to to put this stuff on a pedestal, you know, and to be like, oh, this is like, you know, some grand thing that is like an untouchable work of history. But it is really helpful to just try to be like, yeah, this is like, you know, I'm reading something of Chase's or, you know, I'm reading like whatever, uh, uh, yeah, like you said, appear on the internet. I think that like trying to treat these historical works through that lens is definitely a helpful way to, well, one, see just like how brilliant people used to be, um, but also to see like how human they used to be. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think the interesting part there too is in the same way that people port ideas from Twitter and start experimenting with them, when you get to know the work more intimately and you're actually reading it, it starts to feel um, – I would guess similarly where you you can start to think, okay, I see the holes in this, but I can also see where we can leverage this, which I think gets more into what you propose toward the end of this piece around experimentation in different systems. So maybe you can give a little bit of, of an overview of how you got to that point from, okay, we're thinking about these holes or not holes, breadcrumbs and and things, but I suppose also holes in Rousseau's work in terms of practical ways to implement some of his ideas, yeah. also acknowledging that he's borrowing from a mental model that is quite limiting. And so now we're moving into a space where perhaps what we need to actually start putting these things into place exists, or at least the the framework for testing these things exists. Yeah. Yeah, so um, I'll kind of return for a moment to my personal story in college as a political science major, because that, that's how I, I came around to this part about experimentation, which is that like, you know, political science is not, it's not really a science. Um, and uh, I, I heard this thing recently that like, any academic field that calls itself a science is like almost directly physics envy. Cause if it's like, it <laughs> doesn't call itself physical science. It just calls itself physics. Um, <laughs> and most of academia over the last century got, got physics envy. Um, and, uh, the field of political science and and like the being, you know, a, a student of political science in academia is just this like, pretty limited thing where you're either reading these like classic philosophical works and debating them on their own terms, or people are trying to do these like statistical analyses on, on existing political systems. Um, and I became pretty disappointed in both of those approaches um, in, in undergrad. And, you know, luckily I was very fortunate to have um, a mentor, a, a professor named Toon Mient, who um, studied under Eleanor Ostrom and really opened my eyes to a different way of kind of viewing political science, which combines elements of both this kind of dawn of everything style approach of like, let's look at historical examples outside of the Western sphere, um, and also a more experimental approach to political science. And so Eleanor Ostrom won a, a Nobel Prize for her her work. Um, you know, her, her Nobel essay is called Beyond Markets and States, Polycentric Governance of Complex Economic Systems. And if you're a Dow person, like you should go read this right now. Um, because <laughs> like Ostrom was just at the cutting edge of all this stuff from an, an academic perspective. Um, and like really pushed the narrative beyond the kind of like traditional understanding of states and markets as the only relevant players in defining social systems and towards this view of polycentric governance, um, you know, in which it acknowledges that humans are complex creatures with complex motivational structures and, and social dilemmas that don't fall within the bounds of like traditional rational economic theory um, that became sort of the, the crutch of um, post-enlightenment thinking. 
So as, you know, a, a big fan of Ostrom's work in college, I decided to do my senior thesis uh, around some of these goals and became really interested in this idea of how we can start to find different solutions to solving common pool resource problems or collective action problems that don't rely on these kind of like macro state structures that are the core of of existing political systems. And uh, that's basically like the, the answer there, you know, in, in some form is something that looks like DAOs and, and looks like essentially small groups collaborating to um, overcome collective action problems. And Ostrom studied how this worked in the context of irrigation systems. And um, that, that's like a particularly interesting historical precedent. And then um, there's also some people who built on top of Ostrom's work from an experimental perspective and started creating these um, computer simulations of collective action problems. And then you know, putting humans in labs, essentially playing computer games to try to understand what sort of conditions allow small groups to solve these problems that were, you know, in the sort of more traditional political philosophy framework considered to be unsolvable outside of the context of state actors. Yeah. And and you make this point, which is true in economics and political, now I feel like I have to say quote unquote science. Um <laughs> where you can't really experiment at the scale of nations. Um, and so you either have these like micro experiments in like computer labs or you kind of just end up like philosophizing about what might be true and, and trying to pull from historical examples. And and I think where things get interesting um, or I suppose it's all really interesting, but where where things get actionable is in this idea that the blockchain, of course, um, actually introduces this way of experimenting in ways that we haven't necessarily been able to see at scale. I don't know if you would agree with that, but um, oh, but I would love to dive into that. Yeah, I mean, I think um, yes. I, I think like uh, one does not just go and you know start a new government in the real world to see what happens, you know. <laughs> Uh, so fuck around and find out for governments is not common. It, and it's, it wasn't common or really even that possible, um, you know, before blockchains. And and now um, I think where we're headed is into a world where these things are definitely more um, common and, and possible to fuck around and find out with. And and yes, this brings us to the idea of the, the blockchain Leviathan, which um both of us were kind of tweeting about this idea around the same time uh, last year. And and I think anytime you see intellectual peers that are like having similar uh, ideas around the same time, it's usually a good thing to to dive into and further explore. And so, yeah, the idea of a blockchain Leviathan is basically that if you you go back to Hobbes, who we were talking about earlier, you know, he thought that you needed kings to be this leviathan to um, make sure that that you could have a functioning society, and that you know the the kind of bold hypothesis of of this essay is that blockchains are potentially a new type of leviathan by allowing people to self-organize into capture-resistant small pods of effective coordination 
blockchains rewrite the basic assumptions about the necessary scale of governance. And so um, rather than needing to design governance systems at the scale of nation states or at the scale of, you know, post monarchies, we now have this tool set that allows for self-sovereign coordination at the scale of very small groups of people. And, you know, while there are some historical precedents for that type of thing in the context of, for instance, irrigation systems in dank river valleys of early civilization, obviously the tool set that they had then is, um, you know, not as global or effective as the tool set that we have now. Yeah. And I find this idea really fascinating because it has this assumption or I suppose approach that you're talking about around small groups. Um where we have both like a, a globally scaled technology with the ability to create local groups and experiment with governance on a local scale, which I think is actually a lot of the tension that still exists in the internet more broadly, which is like we can come together, but it's it's not in the sense of like we're physically seeing each other. Um, and so it feels like we both have the ability to experiment with collective organizing and all of that, and then bringing in some of what you're talking about around Ostrom, introducing these like other incentives and and complexity of humans. We also have this like interesting and new territory, which is like empathy is harder online and, and all of these other pieces that I think um, create a really interesting mix of variables for these experiments. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's totally true. And and that kind of comes back to the point that like, you know, the technology is important, um, but people are all, also still people. Um, and yeah, I think this sort of gets into the idea maybe of, of socialware and trustware a bit. I think like this is also maybe the part that's been missing from, from the internet. And, and I really liked what you said about, um, you know, these, these tools allowing for um, kind of like very small hyper local governance, but in a global context. Like what, what, you know, I think the kind of core thesis here is that this is perhaps the first time that without any additional sovereign entity, like a traditional Leviathan or a traditional nation state, anyone can now create an organization that provides immutable rights of governance to members. And um, if you want to, on top of that, an independently controlled currency for the organization. And so, like, you just have to put yourself in Rousseau's shoes for a minute and, like, think about how he might have reacted (laughs) if you told Mm -hmm. him that all of that was, you know, not just possible, but, like, pretty easy to do with anyone in the world instantaneously. Mm. Yeah, and and even the idea this is a little bit tangential, but even the idea of introducing a currency is interesting because part of it makes me wonder, like, I think when I think about, okay, this is really exciting. Um, you know, maybe this is what Rousseau's breadcrumbs from hundreds of years ago, uh, led to, and, and ultimately we're able to start experimenting with this stuff. It makes me go back to this question of, okay, how is our thinking influenced by our current systems? And, and even the idea of something like a currency, of course, that that is like core to a lot of what allows our societies to scale. But it makes me wonder how much things like capitalism as a prevailing system um, 
influence our current thinking on what's possible because I, my mind was immediately like, oh, would Rousseau have been a Uniswap user? What would he have thought of liquidity? But of right. course, that is a very, you know, today's financial market and capitalistic structures approach. Um, I don't know. It, it's a very interesting thought experiment. Yeah, totally. I, I think um, you're absolutely right that we are, are you know, heavily influenced by and view the world through the lens of um, the kind of capitalist structures that exist right now. And that, um, you know, if you think about blockchains abstractly, these sort of like highly financialized use cases are definitely obvious kind of killer app first use cases for these things. But my hope is that they um, are actually not the most interesting use cases over time, and that this sort of blockchain leviathan self-sovereign governance use case is actually the more interesting one, but that it maybe is a little harder to see that through the lens of our current kind of hyper-financialized biases. Mm. Yeah, it makes me wonder, you know, longer term, what this ends up looking like and how this actually plays out. And, and I hope you're right that the hyper-financialization of like everything is not blockchain's best use case. And it does kind of remind me of some of Balaji's work around the network state. And I know Cabin is also one of the few projects that's actually creating these types of governance structures and, and manifesting them in the real world. Do you think like, you know, 50 years from now, we might end up with a bunch of local communities that basically play a much bigger role in people's lives or or perhaps even dissolve like large nation states? Yeah. <laughs> that small is, questions, John. Yeah, small yeah, questions. Yeah. Oh, no, totally. It, it's a fantastic uh and of course very big question. Um but in some sense I think the answer uh is definitely yes. The part of the place where we started with with Cabin was thinking about how the world might grow and and evolve in some of these ways towards the the sort of world that you know Neil Stevenson talks about in Snow Crash with with burb claves and franchulets and um, you know I I was writing science fiction um, out here at the cabins. That was kind of one of the first things I, I wanted to do after we built the first cabin. And a lot of that thinking was was around this idea. It's a little bit of a weird thing because, you know, on one hand, I, I wouldn't consider myself to be some kind of like, um, you know, libertarian trying to like get rid of uh, of like state structures. That That's just like not, not what I'm super interested in. Uh, but I, I do think that there's like a pretty clear trend that we seem to be, or like a path uh, dependence that we seem to be headed down in which we return to these smaller, more local, more self-sovereign governance structures. And I think what I've come around to is, is a belief that that's actually like a deeply American thing. And that, you know, again, if we go back to the founding of the United States, it was in principle designed to be this carefully balanced federation of semi-autonomous local entities. And in, in some ways, it was kind of the best possible realization at the time of Rousseau's breadcrumbs pointing in that direction, but was still fundamentally limited by, um, you know, the, the sort of size and technologies of the time. And so um, 
my my hope is is that what we're doing here in some ways is attempting to build upon and you know use the tools and resources of our era to more fully complete the vision of that sort of federated you know local semi-autonomous structure that defined the origin of America and um, I, I think that that's why I'm reading Tocqueville now because um, I think democracy in America starts to point in in that direction and um, you know we tend to over emphasize and focus on the Declaration and the Constitution as as the like core documents that define um, you know the American political system, and while that's obviously true, Tocqueville points out that the most important part in his mind of kind of defining the American system is not the formal governance structures, but the informal associations and the local groupings of people that that actually are core to democracy. And I think in some ways, my, my hope is that as we continue to evolve these internet native organizations and DAOs and network cities and you know network state type structures, that what we're really doing is reviving this core idea of associations and local institutions that was considered so core to early America. Yeah, I definitely want to touch on that before we wrap up because you call out scale a couple of times in this piece and it feels like, I don't think you're saying this, but some of what you're getting at, I don't know if you'd agree with this, is the idea that like democracy in order to work well basically necessitates locality or or the existence of local communities do you think that democracy can work at scale like without you know basically it devolving into something that's ineffective yeah um you know i mean i think if i i try not to be too much of a maxi about anything but mm-hmm. if I have to be a maxi about something, <laughs> I think I would choose um, small groups. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I think like, um, you know, the just the reality of, you know, Metcalfe's law, this sort of like exponentially or, or geometrically increasing number of connections that are required as you increase the number of people is a fundamental limit to human coordination. So uh, if you have three people, there's only three connections between them. You have five people, 10 connections. Um, you know, you have seven people, 21 connections. And so it just gets out of hand very quickly. So like at cabin, we think about this kind of like ideal small group. We, as a, a one sauna team as sort of like an allusion to the Amazon two pizza team, um, you know, obviously, this is is something that is a meme that has been proliferated a lot by M- Metropolis Pods. Um, but I, I think that, like, ultimately, there is a core truth here that has become really evident over the past couple of years as we've tried to build DAOs, and most of them have been too, um, you know, too many cooks in the kitchen to effectively mm. um, govern themselves. Like the the answer to that, whether you call it pods or working groups or fellowships or guilds or sub DAOs or whatever, um, is is just to try to get a smaller number of people coordinating locally. Mm. 
Yeah, it, it makes me wonder if we'll end up with systems, and I think this happens a lot today already, but it makes me wonder if we'll kind of end up creating a plurality of systems where we acknowledge that for certain types of shared resources, there are economies of scale. And so something like roads, it will always make sense for us to govern collectively. And maybe we have you know a stronger authoritarian role there that we all decide to give our trust in. And then we have these more locally organized spaces, um, which don't necessarily have economies of scale. And you have Metcalf's law coming in and saying, okay, um, you actually really want people to be hyper-connected. And, and so maybe like instead of having this sort of huge monolithic social contract that everyone who is a citizen of or a resident of a given country has to basically say yes to. Um, we just have many different social contracts that exist at different layers of our lives based on the type of resource we're governing and and how we think that resource should be governed. Yes, yes, absolutely. And this system, you know, this type of polycentric governance across multiple scales, um, is exactly what Ostrom was writing about and pointing to. And, you know, we have new tools to, to bring this stuff to global audiences with, with um, immediate connections across the world. But there are good precedents, you know, particularly, I think, going back and understanding how non-Western civilizations solved some of these problems in the context of small clans and tribes and irrigation networks and, and river governance and um, there are examples of these sort of polycentric structures uh, in the world that, that we can learn from. And I, I think it's it's pretty clear that we are headed in the direction of an increase in reliance on these polycentric structures if we want to try to solve the complex problems that you know civilization is is facing right now. Mm. Yeah, it's really interesting. As just one final thought, like I think that Maybe this is just my thinking because this is the era that I live in. But um, when I think about that, I start to think about, okay, what problems do we need to collectively solve globally versus in a given country? And that starts to become sort of a framework for thinking about, okay, at what scale do we need to organize for individual things? And and there is kind of an interesting dynamic that like the atomic bomb and global warming and COVID all happened within a period of time that um brought a lot of i think humans across the globe together in a way that i would imagine um wasn't and of course the internet um wasn't really happening prior i don't know if that's fair um but it does make me think and and have hope that perhaps we'll find ways to to globally coordinate for shared outcomes in a way that wasn't really possible before both because we didn't have the threats that we have now which is maybe just again a dramatic reading of current world events, um, but also because we didn't have the technology to do it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm uh, generally a huge optimist, um, uh, but but I, I believe that to be true. And I think that, you know, a reading of history shows time and time again that humans have risen to the occasion and created the technologies and created the social structures to solve the the big problems at hand. And yeah, I'm, I'm really excited about and optimistic about our ability to do the same thing right now. Well, that feels like a very good place to close this out. John, thank you so much for coming on the show. This was so fun. Where can people learn more about you and Cabin and all of the things? 
Yeah, thank you for having me. Really enjoyed the conversation as always uh, with you. And um, yeah, you you can find me on Twitter at Jonathan Hillis or um, johnhillis.com. And you can find Cabin at Creator Cabins or cabin.city. Beautiful. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks. If you like what you heard, please make sure to rate and subscribe to the podcast. I always forget to do this for podcasts I like, but it's actually super useful. Also, if anything resonated with you or if you want to continue the conversation, hit me up on Twitter. I'm at Chaser Chapman. I absolutely love talking about these things. Thanks again for listening.